Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for the encouragement that it is to us and also the challenge that it is to us. And Lord, we ask this morning as we, as we look at this passage of scripture, as we, as we look toward Easter, Lord, we ask that you would comfort us and challenge us from your word. Show us what it is that it, how it, it, it applies to our life and, and how it describes the greatness of Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would be with us and teach us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few centuries, there are few things, there are many things actually, that have changed the course of history or changed the world so that it's never the same again. Such things like world wars, uh, the invention of the telephone, of electricity, of the first man in space or dog in space, the first man on the moon, uh, the Cold War, the assassination of JFK, the discovery of Australia. The list could go on and on. And in fact, if I tried to make a top ten list, some of you would come to me afterwards and say, what about this? What about this? What about this? But nothing has changed the world in the same way as what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter. We'll be looking at 24 hours that has changed the world forever. I want to set the scene for, for our passage of scripture this morning. Jesus and his disciples have, have entered into Jerusalem and Jesus was on the donkey. There was Palm Sunday. People were saying the Messiah has come. Jesus and his disciples have, have celebrated the Passover together. There have been Jesus' comments about what will happen to him in due time, namely the cross and his resurrection. And Jesus, very just, just prior to this piece of scripture, Jesus instituted the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. But now we move to Jesus and his disciples going out into the place called Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Olives. It's about a half a mile out of Jerusalem, outside the walls. And it was a place that they went to often. Jesus would, would go there often to, to pray. And Jesus took his, his 11 disciples with him. Yes, there is 12, but one of them is off betraying him. He then took his inner circle, his, his closest of his disciples, Peter, James and John, with him just a little bit further to pray. And we hear these words, verse 33. He took Peter, James and John with him and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So the first thing that we see out of this passage this morning is that, that Jesus is in great sorrow. I don't think we can comprehend the feeling that is conveyed here in these English words. I, I don't think 
that we grasp the pain and the anguish and the stress that he's under. Our Saviour is troubled, sorrowful to the point of death. What, what he was worried about, what, he was, what was troubling him was nearly killing him. Luke's Gospel account says that, that Jesus was troubled to the point of, of sweating great drops of blood. It wasn't just some act that Jesus is putting on here. He's, he's greatly troubled and sorrowful. We might know sorrow, deep sorrow. In fact, a few of us are, are feeling that with the passing of loved ones. But it could never be more than what Jesus experiences here. Whatever the sorrow that we experience, our Saviour knows it more. Some commentators call this time the, the last temptation of Jesus. When Jesus is in the garden, all he can see before him is the cross. It's the only thing that he can see. That moment when God's wrath is poured out upon him where he becomes the substitute for our sin, for the sins of the world. And I'll go as far as to say that Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He desired that it would be removed from him. If there was any other way, but he knew that there wasn't any other way. He knew the anguish and the pain and the torment that was going to come, but also the spiritual pain of having the full wrath of God poured out upon him, of having his soul broken. And the thing that Jesus re required or, or craved for the most here was that his closest friends would remain here and watch. All Jesus wanted to do was have his disciples to watch over him, to pray with him, to, to remain there and watch. I know for myself, as a person, as a man, I want to fix a situation. If there's something wrong, if someone's in great sorrow, I want to give advice. I want to help them fix the situation. But nine times out of ten, all that is required is to remain here and watch. We don't always have to have the right words to say. Because often the right words that we think are the right words are not the right words. But Jesus also models here for us that, that when we're faced with times of great sorrow, we shouldn't seclude ourselves from the community of believers. We shouldn't pull ourselves back and, and try and do things on our own. We should surround ourselves with others who will pray for us. The Christian life is one that's not meant to be done alone. It's one that, that we share. We share our burdens, not with just, just with God, but also with each other. Support from, from Christian brothers and sisters is vital in deep times of sorrow. 
but so is supplication. Sorrow, supplication. What is supplication, you say? It's a big word for prayer. Why didn't you just use the word prayer? Because it doesn't start with S and it won't help you remember it. (laughs) Jesus prays. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is not a model prayer from Scripture. This is the model prayer from Scripture. How do we know that Jesus prayed these words? Well, it wasn't uncommon that, that people would pray in Old Testament times out loud. He was just a stone's throw away from his disciples and, and he was in great anguish and sorrow. And when you're in that situation, your voice gets louder and you cry out to God. Just in Exodus chapter 2, the people of Israel groaned and cried out to God in, because of their slavery. Many times in Judges, the people of God cry out to God because of their oppression from rulers who would lord it over them. And God raises up a deliverer for them. The psalmist cries out for God many times. Psalm 57 two. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Psalm 88 verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night to you. Psalm 130 verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. It's clearly here that Jesus is praying to God out of the depths. It is good to pray to God out of the depths because it, it takes our focus off ourselves. It's not that we have to yell so that God will, take, uh, will hear us, but, but it displays our desire, our earnest desire for him. The second thing we should remember out of this prayer is that we should not forget who we are praying to. Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. There's two things there. Look at the the address that he gives him. Abba, Father. Jesus was 100% God and yet 100% man and he realised that he was the Son of God. Subject to his father. He uses the most intimate and personal address for God that that we can ever hear in scripture. Father. Abba. Should we approach God in this same way with this just daddy? As if God is our our dad and and Jesus is our bro? No. 
but we cannot forget that we've been adopted into God's family, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we have been adopted into his family, that we can call him Abba Father. And yet without neglecting the need for reverence and holiness that is due God's name. We've been given this position by God's grace as children of God and yet it is something that we should not forget nor neglect. The second thing out of the second thing that we should remember out of this, this passage this morning is that we should not forget who we are praying to. Jesus says again, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. All things, not just some things. All things are possible for God. Jesus knew that if there was another way, God the Father could remove this cup from him. That all things are possible for his Father. And yet there was no other way. we should not forget that God is able to do all things for us as well. Speaking of the comparison of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven and a camel going through the eye of the needle, Jesus says the words, he looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When we pray, we must remember that God is able to do all things. When we pray, we must remember that, that God is our Father, that he is able to do all things, and yet in the depths of great sorrow, in the depths of tough times, if there was any other way, he would, he would take us that way. There's a reason that God allows us to go through tough times. When we're in the depths of this sorrow, all you can see around you is the, is the hard times, is the tough times. And it's not until you're on the other end, at the other end of the, the difficulty, that you realise these times serve to grow us closer and closer to God. To make us more and more like Christ, that God allows us to be taken through tough times. Have you ever seen the um, footprints in the sand placard that that you'd get from Kurong or something like that, where a man um, goes to meet Jesus after his death, and and Jesus shows him the lifetime that he's led, and the man sees at times two sets of footprints in the sand. And then there's other times where there's only one set of footprints. And, and he asks him, Jesus, I notice there's only one set of footprints in the sand there. And it's during those really difficult times that there's only one set of footprints. Why did you leave me? And Jesus says, my child, that is when I carried you. An extension of this that I've heard is, 
And Jesus then said, Did you see the drag marks? Excuse me. It's through these tough times, these times of great sorrow, <clears throat> where it's of utmost importance for us to be praying. See, if God made everything simple for us, if God took away our trials and temptations, where would the growth be? If I ask God for strength to endure tough times and and yet God didn't give me difficulties to exercise that strength, where would the growth be? If I ask God for wisdom and yet God didn't give me problems to solve, where would the growth be? If I ask for courage and God didn't give me dangers to overcome, where would the growth be? If I ask for patience and God didn't give me situations to exercise patience where I was forced to wait, where would the growth be? If I ask God for life so that I could enjoy life, if I ask God for everything so that I could enjoy life, instead he gives me life so that I can enjoy everything. There's growth in that. You see, sometimes for us to pray that that God would remove the cup from us, to lack knowledge that God is, is the one who knows best. I'm not saying that this is what Jesus did here. He, he desired that this cup would be removed from him. But he knew that God had not just Jesus' best interest at heart, but the interests of sinners who would be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. So we must remember that in great times of sorrow or trial, supplication, prayer, is our greatest weapon because it is the way that we overcome these times. Prayer, when done right, teaches us to submit to the Father's will, just as it does here. Have a look at the second half of verse 36. Jesus says, Remove this cup from me. Yet not I will, not what I will, but what you will. Look at that yet there. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, I'm not generally, but I have that yet highlighted. This is a big thing for me, okay? Ask Jodie, she'll tell you. Underline that yet. Other translations use nevertheless or but. And these words signify a lifetime of teaching for us, don't they? They signify a lifetime of teaching, of of growth, of sanctifying, of refining by God, of going through tough times in order to learn the same lesson time after time. (coughs) 
And yet, for Jesus, that yet was a moment. Jesus' yet is a short moment, not, not a lifetime of learning. He submitted to the Father for his entire life. And it shows that he was giving, willing to give up his request in order to submit to the Father's will. I think no matter what your prayer starts out like, if it starts out at being angry with God, if it starts out being crying out to God from the depths, and yet it ends up here, then prayer has done what, what prayer is supposed to do. If prayer finishes with you saying, able to say, yet not what I will, but what you will. If you're able to submit to God's will in prayer, then prayer has done what prayer is supposed to do. Prayer aligns our flesh with God's spirit. It aligns our, our flesh and our will with God's will. And when we're genuinely, genuinely praying, we're giving over our right to rule our lives. We're giving over our right to decide what is good for us and we're saying, no God, you decide what is good for me. Your will be done. So from this passage this morning we can see that Jesus is in a place of, of great sorrow, of great trouble. Yet he's able to be an example to us that we should turn to prayer in uh, turn to God in prayer not being anxious about anything whatsoever and giving our cares and concerns to God and then ultimately we'll be able to submit to God's will for our lives because if if done right prayer will complete its work and leave us in a place of having our flesh which is weak Aligned with God's Spirit, which is a sign of our salvation. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 22 if you can. We're going to come around the communion table very shortly. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. verses 14 and when the hour had come he reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you I will not eat it until it was until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God and he took a cup and when he had given thanks he said Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to come around this communion table that symbolises the breaking of bread and a little bit of juice, but it symbolises so much more than that. It shows us how Jesus' body was broken and how his blood was shed in order that we would have a new covenant, in order that we would have a new relationship with God. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. And instead of individual pieces of bread, I've got some loaves. If the communion stewards can come forward, please.